You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So we are back in John this morning. We took a five-week break for Advent, uh, but we're back in John 15. If you want to find your way there, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11. Uh, this morning, and uh, just to kind of recalibrate you guys on where we're at, uh, we are still in the upper room. We've been calling this section of the gospel account of John the farewell discourse. Jesus has been sharing his final meal uh, with his closest friends, with his disciples. He's up there with the 11 right now, and he's still teaching. So we've been in this setting on this same night in history for many, many, many sermons now, and I think it's important that we track with that. So you guys do well if after service you guys spend your week this week maybe flipping back two, three, four chapters and rereading John chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 12 to 14, whatever you need to do to kind of get your mind back in the setting that we're in Uh, because we just don't want to take any doctrines or any words of Jesus out of the context of all the rest that he's saying. This is one discourse, one dialogue building on on itself, and it gives us clarity as to why he's saying what he's saying and to whom he's saying what he's saying. And uh, some really bad doctrines flow out of getting some of those things wrong. And so I, I, I want you guys to know this morning that when we talk about the vine and the branches, we're talking about a, a passage that most of you, if you grew up in the church or you've been uh, in the church for some time, it's unlikely that you've never heard this taught, whether it was in a devotional or from a pulpit or just in your own small group studies. I mean, this is a very popular verse. I want to encourage you guys not to check out on account of this being a known verse in that it has been my experience that this has also been one of the most butchered passages in the Bible, Uh, that this has been one of the most mischaracterized and misused, miscategorized passages in the Bible. And when we get certain things wrong in this passage, really bad doctrines flow out of it, even borderlining on heresy. And so we've got a great labor to do this morning uh, to understand these passages in the context of what Jesus is saying and who he's saying them to, and what he's referring to. Now, I think that some of the main things that we're trying to navigate this morning as as far as avoiding some of these costly errors is one of the things that we see, I think, most often with this passage is that we miscategorize the section itself, the whole passage, and we call it law when it's gospel. We have to ask, when Jesus is speaking here and he's calling his people, the church, his very disciples, his friends, to abide in him, Is he calling them into a law, hey, do this or else, or is he proclaiming something over them that is meant to build them up and encourage them? And I want to hold out to you, firstly, this morning, that what we're reading this morning is gospel, not law. And if that's difficult for you to see on the front end, I believe you're going to agree with me by the time we finish. Secondly, we don't just miscategorize the passage as law, but we also kind of miscategorize one of the people that is named in this passage, the dead branch, the one who is swept away and cast into the fire. I want you guys to hear me on the front end that this miscategorization, this misunderstanding of who that person is, all kinds of bad theology flows out of that also. And it really stems, I think, from miscategorization about who Judas was. This is why it's so important for you guys to flip back just a couple of chapters and really get yourself back into the upper room and remember what's going on here. Jesus originally washed the feet of 12 disciples, but right now he's speaking to 11. 
He washed the feet of 12 disciples, and that included Judas. And then he sent Judas out to go do what he's going to do. And now he's continuing in speaking to the 11. If we misunderstand who Judas was, if we say Jesus was truly his disciple, but then somewhere along the way he lost his way, then what we arrive at is that you can lose your salvation if just you're just one bad decision away from walking away from being a disciple of Jesus. And that because that's happened, that's why Jesus is warning the other disciples, hey, don't do what Judas did. But that, we're going to find this morning that that's not what's happening here either. That, Jesus, that Judas is being characterized as one who was never grafted into the vine and was therefore brushed away. And lastly, I think that we um, mischaracterize what it means to abide. I'm going to break down all of these things for you. You don't have to like rapidly take notes. I see somebody like trying to keep up with me. But it's important that you hear me say up front that that's what we're after this morning, that we're fixing, we're trying to fix our understanding of what is the right category for this passage, what's the right category for the Judases, and what is the right category for the word abide. Is abiding a state of doing or is it a state of being? Is what we're going to get after this morning, and I want to argue for you guys that it is a state of being. So as we navigate our way through that, what we're going to try to clear up is what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the true vine? What does he mean when he says the Father is the vine dresser? What does he mean when he says that we are the branches? What does he mean when he says that we are already clean because of the word that he's spoken? What does he mean when he says that the dead are not attached to the vine? What does he mean when he says that fruit is evidence of comfort? And really, what does he mean when he says to abide? Okay, so let's get after it. Chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says to his friends, I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. These are our first three verses to tackle this morning. Now, when Jesus breaks into a uh, metaphor about a vineyard and vines and vine dresser and all this, this is not a new thing. He hasn't crafted a whole new idea for the people. The, the uh, kind of picture, word picture of a vineyard and a vine dresser uh, had been spoken over the people of God in the past. It comes from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. Let me read it to you quickly. And we're going to see how Jesus and the church are the better vineyard that was shown to us in, than what was shown to us in Isaiah chapter 5. This is what the prophet writes. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on very fertile hill. He dug it out and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned, or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up, and I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So what we see in this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 5 is that the original vineyard that was prophesied over the people, that was explained to the people of God, were meant, was meant to be Israel, his chosen people. But we find that this people group was an imperfect vineyard, that they were a broken vine producing bad fruit, that they were a type, but they were not the perfect. And here Jesus is claiming to be the true vine. And so when we hear Jesus claim to be the true something, we, mean the, we know that he means the perfect version of that thing. He calls himself the true tabernacle, the true light, the true bread. And whenever he's talking about this, he's talking about perfecting that which was shown to us before only in shadow or in type. He says that he has come to do these things perfectly, what Israel was unable to do in its own strength. And he says that the original vineyard, Israel, failed to do what it was called to do, and that Jesus has come to do perfectly what they have failed to do. So here, Jesus claiming to be the true vine is very exciting for some Jews to hear him say. And he calls his father the vine dresser. And he says that every branch in him that doesn't bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, takes away, and that every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And so here, when he introduces his father, God the Father, as the vine dresser of the vineyard, and he calls himself Jesus the vine, what we start to see is an introduction to the nature of the relationship between the vine, the branches, and the vine dresser. We don't want to misunderstand as if uh, God the Father and God the Son are different in essence from one another, but we are exposed to differences in their role, aren't we? That Jesus himself is the source of life for his church, for those who are grafted into him, for you and I. That the church is born, brought forth in all of its power and all of its splendor and all of its beauty, all of its righteousness is drawn from the vine. That the vine itself is intimately and tenderly and passionately cared for by the vine dresser, who Jesus says is the Father. And so right away we start to see this kind of building confidence that Jesus is building that if it's God the Father who is passionately tending to the health of the vine and that Jesus himself is the vine, then the care of the vine by the Father is going to be in proportion to the care of the Father for the Son since the Son is the vine. And so we can expect, I know that this feels lofty, but we can expect that God the Father will only do what is perfect for the true vine, which is his son, Jesus being the radiance of the very glory of God. See, the father takes perfect pleasure in his son. He loves him perfectly because he is the radiance of his own glory. He is one with God. He will not withhold one good thing from the vine if the vine is the son. This is a good thing, but what does it mean then for the father, the vine dresser, to care for the vine? Well, Jesus says that for every branch in him that does not bear fruit, he will take it away, and that for every branch that does bear fruit, that he will prune it, that it will bear more fruit. And so now we're introduced in this uh, word picture to two kind of different groups of branches, one of them grafted into the vine and one of them not grafted into the vine. 
Now, in first century Palestine, the way that you would tend to, because you, know, you kind of have to be there to really grasp the word picture, is when you would start a vineyard for the first three years of that vineyard's existence, you would not allow the vines to bear fruit. You would prune them, prune them, prune them in order that for three years they would grow in size and strength in order that they could bear the weight of fruit. And then after that fourth year, their first year bearing fruit, they would go through an annual pruning once it was bearing fruit, where for three months of the year, the vine dresser would go and he would clean the shoots off. There were three ways that you would tend to the vine once it was bearing fruit. It was like this. The branches that would come off of it, you would top the branches. That means to shorten them when they get too long. And in this way, if you think about the way a vine works, I'm, I just don't want to make too many assumptions that any of us get this because, you know, we are in, in Mascuta, but we're not all agrarian. The way that a vine works is it provides sap to the branches, and that's the life force of the branch that allows it to bear fruit. And, that's a, and, and so when you have the branches growing longer than they need to for fruit, then they end up sinking under their own weight. And so you do what's called topping. You top them off and you shorten the branch in order that it's not expending sap on getting more branch, on building more branch, but that the branch focuses on building more fruit. And so in the one way, we could say that when the vine dresser is pruning a branch, a living branch that's bearing fruit you, one of the ways that he's doing that is he's pre preventing you from exerting energy be to become more branch, to make more of you, but instead to bear more fruit of the Spirit of God. That's number one. The second way that a vine dresser would prune or clean the vine is that annually he would pull off or pinch off the shoots that were coming off in order that additional kind of channels wouldn't come off of the vine, but that there would be that main kind of meaty vine connected that makes the fruit. And then lastly, the way that he would prune the vine is that he would take away the dead altogether. If something was not grafted in, was not receiving sap, was not part of the main vine, he would just break it off altogether and burn it in order to make more room for the living parts of the branches to grow. And so Jesus, using a word picture here, has given us kind of a picture of this where he says that there are two types of branches, that, that there are those who are grafted into the vine, he himself being the vine, there are those that are not grafted into the vine, and those are just uh, crowding out those who are grafted into the vine. They're just getting in the way of the health of the vine and its living branches, and so those ones are swept away. But even for those who are grafted in, that they still undergo a pruning that keeps the branch from growing too long and keeps them from focusing on growing things that are not fruit. And so we're going to talk about those two categories this morning. The difference between punishment and discipline is what we are being introduced to here. But it's important, I think, on the heels of a proclamation like that that we allow ourselves to fully receive the confidence of verse 3, where Jesus says to his disciples before they get any bad ideas here, already you are clean, because of the word that I have spoken to you. And so he's just said that, the, that God is going to prune those branches that bear fruit, and then he's just said to them right after that, but already you are clean. And this word clean is literally the exact same word as prune. It's kathairo in the Greek. And so this word prune and this word clean are used in succession to one another. When Jesus is repeating himself, he's trying to make sure we don't miss it. So I don't want you to miss it by when we translate it to English, you see two different words. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or cleans, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean or pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. And so we see that the agent by which we are pruned and cleaned is the word of Jesus Christ, the word that we've opened here. We're going to talk about that also this morning. But here's the first kind of charge, the first call that we see from him in light of that. Verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. This classification, I mean, I think most of us jump to, am I a dead branch or am I a fruit-bearing branch because I don't want to be swept away and thrown into the fire. And so we're going to, because that's our natural inclination, I'm going to spend time alleviating that tension. But we don't want in hearing loud words like that, start focusing over there, and miss that what Jesus emphasizes first is the distinction between the vine and the branch, not the living branch and the dead branch. Because a lot of us, when we are not uh, feeling trepidation about whether I'm a living branch or a dead branch, we immediately start making ourselves the vine. And that's really as much of a risk as anything in that you start thinking about the vine and you're talking about a real slavery because now you're responsible for producing fruit. And if you're responsible for producing fruit and producing life, then you are not uh, grafted into the vine. You are the vine and that's called self-righteousness and so you're actually a dead branch. So you could focus on either one and and really you're going to get to the same place. We need Jesus. And this is what he's getting at. You need to abide in me, because apart from me, you can do nothing. So pop quiz, is producing fruit something that you do? No. Producing fruit is something that happens for you from the vine. It happens in you from the vine. And this is where I want to kind of do some category correction for you guys. If Jesus is talking about abiding as the great call here, and the word abide has no great translation, Um, but it can be stay, remain, continue to exist, I saw, (laughs) reside, live, dwell. We don't have a great word for it because it wants to be a verb, only there's nothing to do. My favorite is continue to exist. Keep doing what is. Keep being what is. That's the call from Jesus for the branch that is grafted in, to abide. And then he says that for those who are abiding in him, that they will bear much fruit, and that when they bear much fruit, that God the Father, the vine dresser, goes to work pruning them in order to ensure that they produce more fruit. That means that God the Father is intimately and intensely interested in producing fruit in you. It will be so. It is so. Like, God's not going to fail at that. And so he gets all the credit. 
you are not the vine, you are the branch. You will produce fruit if you abide in Jesus. How do I abide? Be. Well, but what if I'm not producing fruit? He talks about that. We're going to get there. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch, and he withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." When Jesus says that you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, why is it that he then says to us that the Father will continue to prune? This is, uh, should sound very similar to what happened at the foot washing. You guys will remember that um, we had a guest preacher that week. Um, but uh, at the foot washing, Jesus was talking about, uh, it, he said to Peter, who was trying to refuse to let Jesus wash his feet, Peter says to him, uh, like, by no means, and Jesus is like, unless you let me clean you, then you can have no part in me. And then Peter overcorrects, and he's like, well, then wash my head and my feet also. And uh, then Jesus is like, no, you're already clean, and the one who is already clean doesn't need to bathe. He just needs to have his feet washed. Do you remember this? But then Jesus kind of end caps that with saying, but not all of you are clean. And then it kind of says in parentheses there that it was because he knew who was to betray him. Talking about Judas. Here, similarly, Jesus is once again claiming, you're already clean. You have been washed. You are in no need of a bath. We're not talking about a pruning that produces salvation. We're talking about a pruning that produces fruit in those who are saved. And this is the difference between punishment and discipline. And that pruning, while it may hurt, as the Lord cuts away those things which are inhibiting the production of fruit, is only for your good and for his glory, for the, magnif for the magnification of the Son, for the advancement of the kingdom. Whereas the branch that is dead was always dead, it was never grafted in, and those things receive punishment, like the original vineyard, where he keeps the rain from falling. In John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them away from my hand. Again, in John 6, 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so when you hold what Jesus is saying up against other things that he said, like we don't have to make this super interesting, like just don't let Jesus contradict himself. Just let him speak to him for himself. When he talks about brushing away a branch, he's simply not talking about any branch that ever belonged to him. Because there's no such thing as a branch that temporarily belonged to him. He said that. Any that were given to him, he will never let be snatched from his hand and he will never cast them out. And so you, church, are meant to hear this morning the primary assurance that Jesus wanted for his original audience to hear, which is their security, not a list of dues. Like, 
the disciples did not leave this dinner gathering really worried about, well, how do I abide? How do I abide? How do I abide? You need to let Jesus tell you why he's saying what he's saying. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that, you may, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So if you read this and you're freaking out like you're missing it or you're not a living branch. And we're going to get around to that in just a minute. Because of this one sentence, I think I better resolve it where uh, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This is where this doctrine about losing your salvation comes up. Is well, he said, in me. It's a, it's a branch that's in me, and then it is taken away by God. And so that's concerning, right? I want you to read John uh, 10, 28 with me, or, 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 John, or Luke 8, 18 with me, uh, where he says, Take care then how you hear, for the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. In 1 John 2.19, John wrote that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In the church are people who believe that they are grafted into the vine. But believing that you are grafted into the vine is not the same thing as being grafted into the vine. Hanging out among Christians, going to, the church, going to church, doing religious things, memorizing scripture, these are not the things that make you a Christian. What make you a Christian is are you grafted into the vine? I mean, it's, it's that simple. Are you in Christ? Is he in you? Has the Holy Spirit taken up residence in you? Has he taken a heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh? Have you experienced spiritual new life by your faith in Christ alone? It's like the whole thing. What then flows out of that from spiritual new life, all of the things that we do, all of the obedience, all of the good works, all of that stuff, these are proofs of confidence for the church that testify that you have new life, but they don't produce new life meaning that you can do things compelled by the Holy Spirit right along somebody who's copying you. And what you can see on the outside can look exactly the same, but it doesn't make you both a living branch because we aren't made living branches by what we do. Last week, I think I said, or maybe it was, I think it was last week I said that this is the difference between slavery and serving the family. Right, like, Two people can do all the same stuff. But if doing is not flowing from, but instead it's trying to earn for, then you're not a living branch. Regarding this in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, uh, Paul wrote that we must examine ourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith Test yourselves, or do, not, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? That's how he said it. And this is where we come around to this idea of fruit, 
You know, he says that he who abides in him will bear much fruit, that apart from him we can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. These branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Like, what it comes down to is how do I know I'm a, I'm a living branch? His spirit produces fruit in you. And if you're like, I don't see much fruit in my life, I think rightly classifying fruit is important. I know a lot of guys, um, when, like when you're in the ministry, um, you, you kind of build a fraternity with, um, with pastor types, ministers, and all that. We all kind of have our own bents. And one of, the, um, one of the common bents in, in different church traditions, I, I don't mean this as a hard criticism, just as an observation, um, is that we limit the definition of fruit to the things that we don't do. Like some guys just feel really good about the evidence of fruit in their life on account of what they're not doing. And other guys are, are on, the, on the other camp, you know, they're, they're um, sinning all over the place over here, but they take a whole lot of credit for the good things that they do. Right, and those are those are kind of two of the ways that we can uh, get get fruit wrong. That there, that fruit is uh, the things that we do in our strength. The things are the things that we abstain from in our strength, and it's ultimately just kind of about me. It's about the positions that I take on things. It's about how boldly I speak about this thing or that thing. It's um, about how dedicated I am to. I mean, when I whenever I hear this preached, this text preached, even I'm told abiding. And producing fruit, it, it's, it's basically boiled down and simplified to two things, that you pray and that you read your Bible. Like, this is how the church has, like, espoused this text for a long time now, is that, like, you need to abide and produce fruit by praying and reading your Bible. And so you'll meet guys, well, I haven't missed a quiet time in 20 years. And yet, like, pray and read the Bible, like, do those things, obviously. But that's not what we mean when we say that the Holy Spirit will produce fruit in you. Like, why is it? Do you guys remember several weeks back when we talked about why, when Jesus said that we would do the works that he does, why do we always want him to mean multiplying loaves and not washing feet? Remember that? Like, Jesus, this is the same interaction. Jesus has promised that if the Spirit indwells us, that he will do, that we will, the church will do the works that he did, and even greater works than these will we do. The evidence of fruit in your life is not so much your discipline as much as it is the radical similarity with which you live like Jesus. When you do things that only Jesus does, when you love the unlovable, when you wash feet, when you sacrifice your comfort for the good of the lost, when you are tender with the prostitute and the tax collector and you, and, and, and when you remember the great gap that he had to bridge to rescue you and you're willing to extend the gospel to people that are that same distance away, these are things that the Spirit cares about. These are not things that you care about. These are not things that I care about. These are evidence of life. When you count this life as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, 
when you count all matters of matters of submission and obedience, when you call Jesus Lord, Lord, only those with the indwelling Holy Spirit do this. These are signs of life. People who patently reject Christ pray. People who are not born again can read. It's more than your discipline. It's Christ taking lordship of your whole life. This is what we mean by fruit. Matthew chapter 7, 16 through 17, we read, You will recognize them, his disciples, by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Ephesians 2.10, We are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James 2.17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 1 John 2, 3-6, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is like a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, must walk in the same way in which he walked. You know, we're describing like the overhaul of a life, that a life once lived to sin is now lived to Christ. Like there's no category that's untouched by this. I've quoted this a lot, and I'll, I'll quote it again. It was A.W. Pink, I think, who said, that the difference between a child of God and an empty professor is not the absence of sin, but, that the, but it's the um, uh, remorse over it. That it's not that suddenly you become perfect. It's not that suddenly you don't need the daily foot washings that Jesus said that you would need. That daily you need to repent of your sin, not for forgiveness, but for cleansing, for pruning. but that in some form or fashion that your life is demonstrating that the Holy Spirit is alive in you. And this is what Paul is talking about when he tells us in 2 Corinthians to examine ourselves whether or not we're in the faith. He says, is Jesus Christ in you? And just in case there's somebody in here this morning who is like having a panic right now, I'm looking for you. Give me, give me a sign. I, I, I need you to hear it. Like, go home and talk to your Lord. One of the, one of the uh, you know, uh, assurances that I would like for you to hear is that if you sincerely desire to be found in Christ, that you're like, I, I want Jesus to be Lord, and I hate all of these different areas where I fail to submit to him. It's a really, really good sign. Really good sign. If you're hearing me speak and you are in your mind pulling out your resume, oh, I do this, 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 and this, I'm good. Not a great sign. If you're pulling out the record of your life and saying, 
and God's done this, 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 and this, that's a great sign. It's a matter of central characters. Are you the vine or are you the branch? And if all the good cannot be credited to Christ, then you should pause and talk to your God. I had a point in here that fruit is your evidence of comfort. This, is, this comes from the last uh, verse here in verse 11 when, um, he, where Jesus says that these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Like you're supposed to hear this if you belong to him and just be like taken by joy, by the joy of Christ. Because if you're in him, what he's saying is that fruit in your life is confidence building evidence of your salvation. If instead you're hearing this and works are now a slavery, fruit is now something that you need to strive for, abiding is something that you need to do in order to become okay with Jesus, then you remain a dead branch. And I call you now, repent of your self-righteousness and cling to Jesus as the only true source of life and, and, and receive from him his perfect life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. And then know that for all who call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And the Holy Spirit will get to business doing good works in you that were predestined before time. But still some others, I think this is most of us, are not so much in that category this morning, but it's in this mischaracterization of discipline and punishment. Well, if I was a fruit-bearing branch, then I wouldn't be going through all the hard things that I'm going, why does God allow so many difficult things to come to pass in my life? Surely his judgment is upon me. Surely he's punishing me. I speak in uh, fairly directly. We tend to express these things more subtly than that. But your God disciplines whom he loves. I want to take this from Hebrews chapter 12. It's felt fitting to pull in Hebrews several times throughout this discourse. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. Let me read this to you. It's for discipline that you have to endure, is what our author writes. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there, from, or is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I think I'll keep going. Therefore, let your drooping hands and strengthen your, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, church. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, 
Then no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one's sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, what we read in, in that passage in Hebrews, I'm going to preach Hebrews one of these days, is that the primary fruit of the Spirit is repentance. And that when you harden yourself to repentance over time, that like Esau, a day may come where through angry, hot tears, you may wish you could repent, but you just can't. That you've grieved the Holy Spirit past the point of return. Let it not be said of you that you were like Esau, that you sold your birthright, and then later couldn't bring yourself to repent. The discipline of the Lord is the way in which he treats you like sons. This is what it means to be pruned. And so, yes, hard things come. And I don't mean discipline always like you've done something wrong and that's why hard things are happening. Like it would be a travesty if you heard me say that. There are enough people saying that. It's not true. What I mean is that all the things that the Lord is doing in your life are him pruning you if you are a living branch to make way for more fruit. He blesses you in order that you would produce more fruit and he takes away in order that you would produce more fruit, but it all serves the chief end of producing more fruit to the glory of his name. Let's go back to John 15 and hear this sentence as we wrap up our time. He says in verse 9, or verse 8, by this, by the, the church producing fruit and therefore proving to be his disciples, that the Father is glorified that the Father is glorified. And we know how preoccupied our God is with his glory because it is from his glory that all created things receive their satisfaction. And if the Father is singularly focused on magnifying the glory of the Son and through that magnifying the glory of the Father, and, that then, and he is saying that it's through bearing fruit in the church that this is going to be achieved, this gives us yet greater hope that he will do what he has said he is going to do. And he says, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Well, how has the Father loved Jesus? As the Father has loved the Son, that's how Jesus has loved us, and he's calling us to stay there, to abide in that. The Father has loved the Son, and the Son has loved the Father, and they've both loved the Spirit in every possible arrow direction. They have been perfectly, and with perfect, great, intense, I don't, there's no like, words for this, loved one another eternally. Past, present, future, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been so happy to perfectly give and receive love from one another, always. And Jesus is like, and that's how I love you. Like, if that doesn't speak peace over you, I tell you these things that, you may, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. That my joy, Jesus said, may be in you, that your joy may be full. 
He's talking about sharing with you the joy that he has perfectly possessed from eternity past. The joy of the Father. The Father delights in the Son, and by grafting into him, the Father delights in you. And this is where you receive the fullness of your joy. So when you go through pruning, count it as joy. It's confidence-building evidence of your salvation. Spurgeon said, I don't know if he was right, but he was right about a lot of stuff. He said, the word is often the knife with which the great husbandman uh, or vine dresser prunes the vine. And brothers and sisters, if we were willing to feel the edge of the word and to let it cut away something that may be very dear to us, maybe we should not need so much pruning by affliction. But when the first knife does not produce the desired result on its own, the vine dresser uses another sharp tool by which we are effectually pruned. The word, the word is the vine dresser's knife. It is the best way to be pruned to know this, to love this, to cherish it, to store up the words of Jesus in your heart, to let it reform you, to let it inform you, to bring you under his lordship. I mean, when he commands us, his disciples, to go in Matthew 28 and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them to observe all that he commanded. How could we do that, obey that command, unless we knew all that he commanded? Well, it's here. Like this is the primary tool of pruning. The word is a double-edged sword and it will convict you and encourage you and build you up and change you. So church, I can't encourage you enough. If you're going to make a resolution this year, let it be to dwell intimately with the Lord through his word. But if we won't be shaped by the word alone, and none of us are that simple, the Lord is kind enough to treat us like children and to bring every other form of pruning, cleaning into our lives in order that we would bear the fruit that he will produce in us. The takeaway for you guys this morning is firstly to breathe out if you are a true vine. The fruit in your life is the evidence of your salvation, and if you can't see it, I would say turn to a brother and sister in your gospel community and ask them to tell you about the fruit in your life. It might just be that you've just got a nasty inner voice. It's common enough. We did a marriage exercise at Mercy's Door four years ago or so, um, second year of the church, I think, and what my favorite part in it was we were reading a book called The Meaning of Marriage, and um, there was an exercise where we were asked to turn to your spouse and to um, acknowledge that the Holy Spirit has given you a unique position uh, as the spouse to see the work that he is doing in this other uh, brother or sister in the faith that maybe nobody else can see. And so the challenge was just turn to your spouse and tell them two, three, four, five things that you see the Lord doing in them right now, over the last year, over the last 10 years, you know, whatever. And it was meaningful. I don't think we ever got around to like the next activity. It just, it just became a room full of spouses building up one another as they proclaimed over them, this is where I see Jesus working in you right now. 
And your spouse isn't the only one who can do that. This is the nature of gospel community. Turn to your friends who, you, who know you and ask them, I, I don't see fruit. Do you see fruit? And receive encouragement from a brother or a sister in the faith. And if everyone's like, no, I don't see it, then come see me. <laughs> Church, my concern this morning is that we'll go into another year treating abiding like a job, like a law, that some of us will feel okay because of our church attendance as if abiding in the church is the same thing as abiding in the vine, that our Bible reading is the same as abiding in the vine, that our prayer is the same as abiding in the vine, your activities flow out of your abiding. Your activities are not your abiding. Getting these categorically correct are going to be very important to your peace and your growth in 2023. Be first, and then from your state of being, do, that your works would testify to you your state of being. Does that make sense? Let's pray to that end together.